0: Hey everybody, this is Kai Wright, host of season one of There Goes the Neighborhood. And the team that brought you that season has been hard at work, not on another Neighborhood series, but on another podcast that we think is really important. It's called Caught, and it's all about the lives of young people stuck in the juvenile justice system. We think that you will be really interested in it, and we'd love you to listen to it. So here's episode one, and hey, if you like it, go subscribe. Caught, the lives of juvenile justice. Thanks.
1: I I explained to you last night that
0: the bricks were starting to fall and they were all gonna come crumbling down. Uh, All the evidence we've got, we know that you were there. So that's where we need to start. And that is where we are starting to. The feeling of getting caught. That moment when you just, you cannot run, You cannot hide. It is time that you face the consequences for what you've done.
1: Were you there? Yeah. Why didn't you tell us last night?
0: Because I was scared. Scared, young and scared. You know the feeling I'm talking about. I mean, really scared. Think back to it. That moment when, like, you're hiding in your friend's house or wherever, and you're thinking, God, if I can just get away with this, if I can just not pay for what I've done this time, I will not do it again. After what happened happened, I went to the bathroom, and I just looked at myself, and
2: when I looked in the mirror, I felt like I wasn't looking at myself. And yet,
0: the consequences, they still come. So then what? What happens after that? For a lot of us, honestly, we pay some kind of price for our mistakes and we move on. Maybe we learn something, hopefully we grow a little. But for others, the dumb, destructive choices of our youth have a lasting impact. Or the help that is clearly needed, the help that those choices suggest we have to get, it never comes.
1: I wouldn't even wish, like, jail on nobody, like, because it's not a nice place to be. And it's like hard to be here. You be in a pile with people you don't like, but you can't do nothing because if you do something or say something wrong, you're gonna get in more trouble or locked down.
0: Outrage over the criminal justice system has become a defining civil rights issue. Starting at least with Michelle Alexander's groundbreaking book, The New Jim Crow, and running all the way through Colin Kaepernick today, people are talking about the excesses of cops and courts with a new urgency. But here's the thing. That conversation has focused largely on the horrific end of the story, when there's a dead body. So in this podcast, we're going to instead look at the moment when young people first collide with law and order and the lifelong mark it makes on them. We've all heard the stat, America incarcerates more people than any country in the world. Well, that starts young. On any given night, roughly 53,000 young people are in some form of lockup. Like, that's more than a sold-out crowd at a Major League Baseball game. And nearly 60% of those kids are Black or Latino. These are our kids, all of them. They're our future. And yet, it's too easy to just put them away somewhere and forget about them. That is, unless it's your family, your sister or your brother, your son, sitting in lockup. I'm Kai Wright, and this is Caught.
1: He was always dressed in a costume, running around the house, his Spider-Man costume. He wanted to be a superhero.
3: (laughs) Oh yeah, (laughs) I remember that too.
1: He used to always say, Spider-Man, doodle man, come around the town.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's my childhood. This is Zeke. It's not his real name. We're going to conceal his identity. But we met Z and his mom two years ago when we were recording the stories of kids held in a juvenile detention facility in Queens, New York. Free me, free me. (laughs) He's 16 years old here. And the first time his mom came to visit him, he was in the basement of the detention facility playing Monopoly with another kid and some guards. We'd actually been teaching him how to use some radio equipment to record his thoughts while he was locked up. Testing one, two. He brings the mic up into the family visitation room. He sits down with his mom at a little table and he starts interviewing her. Um, how was it like when you first saw me perform?
1: The first time, it was a whole lot of people. <laughs> and it's like, that's my son, that's my son on stage. I was so... I was just so excited. I don't know.
3: Tell him about your support throughout my whole rap career.
1: You was diagnosed with a learning disability. You had a lot of problems in school. So I had to think of a way where you would catch up with the other kids and we realized that you liked music. Because every time I put on the radio, you would sing with me and we would dance. And so I thought I should go get a dictionary. I could trick him into learning all the words in the dictionary. Then I was like, look, you can get words out of this book, and you can use it in your songs. That's when I knew that you was talented. When you was about eight, nine years old, uh, you made a video to bouncing Like a Bunny. <laughs> <laughs> bouncing like a bunny. money, Boun- bouncing like a bunny. Boun- on like a bunny. Boun- on like a bunny. like a bunny. It's money baby.
3: It just looked like a music video, yeah, it looked professional. I was only like eight or nine years old.
1: I still think that would have been a hit.
3: Yeah. I
1: never gave up. There was many times you were like, oh, mommy, I don't want to rhyme no more. I don't want to sing. And I used to be like, why? He was like, because I'm just never going to go anywhere. I was like, no, you are. You're good. I always thought he was going to be another Jay-Z or 50 Cent. And, and i look at you.
2: Yeah.
0: <laughs> Z's a quiet kid, maybe 5'9 with a slight build. He's the type to look down when you try to make eye contact with him. And I look at him, and I just don't see a kid who'd commit a violent crime. Yet, he's in for armed robbery. He and a bunch of friends robbed a store, and at least one of them had a gun. Which means somebody else looked at Z and feared for their life. Still, it is really not fair to start his story there. Because that was nowhere near Z's first collision with the law. When was the first time you were arrested?
3: Uh, I think in sixth grade. In sixth grade, so you were like, what, 12 years old? Yeah. It started off something simple. I was just a young kid. We were selling candy and stuff.
0: <laughs> selling candy? <laughs> what do you mean selling
3: candy? Like selling candy. That was my like little hustle when I was younger.
0: And so you would just kind of walk around school with, like, a box of candy? No, uh,
3: not walk around school, but during lunchtime, everybody used to come to me and stuff, and I made, like, a good $200 a week doing that. So $200 like, a
0: week? is yeah. That's money.
3: Yeah. <laughs> I felt like I was rich for, like, a sixth grader. <laughs>
0: you were rich for a sixth grader, $200 a week.
3: So we selling, and after that, this kid came to me said, can I sell it to you? I was like, all right, fine. But then after he was like, for every candy bar I sell, I'm gonna keep a dollar for myself. And I'm like, wait, we gotta get a profit type stuff. You
0: so. can hear where this is going. It was Z's candy in the first place, but the other oh. kid, he wanted to keep all the money. And Z was like, uh, hell no.
3: So we got into an argument and actually led to us fighting with each other. Were you like on the school campus or where, where was the fight? Right across the street from the school campus. I don't know, I don't know what made him do it, but he went to the precinct and he told on us and said we tried to rob him for his money.
0: Now, this is an important detail, because this is the moment where a schoolyard fight turns into a criminal concern. So in order to get a true sense of it, to really see how this thing snowballed so quickly, one of our reporters, Jared Marcel, he took me out to Z's middle school to show me where the fight went down. Yeah, there's there's four
2: four cops out here. Yeah. And they're standing by the entrance, which is, I mean, you would think that something was about to go down. Not necessarily that kids are getting out of
0: school. The school is literally next door to a police station.
1: Hi. Say something.
3: <laughs> Hi.
2: Y'all go to school right by the precinct, right? Yeah,
1: yeah. yeah. What's that like? It's crazy. You always see the cops yeah, running to break like, up a fight. Exactly. Cops, police. Especially police cars. around here. police cars. Police cars everywhere.
0: Cops are just a constant, routine part of these kids' lives. So when Z's candy-selling partner decided he wanted to do something about the fact that he got beat up, he didn't have to go far.
3: After the fight, I went in his pockets. I was like, nah, that's my money. I'm not (laughs) letting you walk. You're not leaving. You're not leaving away from me until I get my money back. And so he gets up, goes to the precinct. I seen him walking towards the precinct, and I was like, oh, he walking towards the precinct. Let me get out of here for stuff Stuff escalate. Then it ended up, like, he filed the
0: police report. Z's a minor, so we can't see his records to get the official account of what happened. And to be fair, he acknowledges that things got carried away. He beat the kid up and threw his shoes on top of a building. Still, he was in middle school. And what happened next, it just seems way out of proportion.
3: And I was in front of the store one day by the school. And all of a sudden, I seen two cops coming towards me, but it looked like they wasn't trying to look at me. So... I was like, all right, maybe I'm over-exaggerating, and they're not coming towards me. So it looked like they about to walk right past me. I put my head down. All I feel is a handcuff on one of my arms. I'm like, oh, wow. yeah, they got me. Wow. And so they, they handcuff you, and what happens? They bring me to the precinct, and they call my mom up. Yeah. Did she come down there? Yeah, she had to come down to the precinct. So they took me from there to the courthouse. They put me inside the little police van. And they drove me, two officers in the front of me, two officers in the back of me. And I had to stay downstairs in, like, this little cell.
0: When you were going up
3: to see the judge, when you left that room and they took you up to see the judge, what were you thinking? I was, like, praying. Come on, I need to go home. Like, I'm tired of being here. I've been eating these cold turkey sandwiches all day and drinking this (laughs) nasty milk. Like, I need to get out of here. So you get up there and, and
0: he says what to you?
3: Um, so you go over there with your attorney at the table, and you face towards the judge, keep your hands behind your back, and then they ask you um, your first name and last name. Then they ask you to say, like, a little oath, like, do you swear to tell the truth? Raise your right hand, I think. I'm not sure. Your lawyer um, talks to the judge, and if they feel like you're ready to go home, they let
0: you go home. And so at the end of all that, they told you, all right, you can go home. Yeah. But that wasn't just the end of it. From that moment, Z was marked. The fact of his arrest was sealed to the public, yes, but not to the system. The precinct officers knew him, the judge knew him, and now he had a record with a violent crime. Had you ever been in any trouble before that with the law of any kind? Mm,
3: Nah, like, not with the law, like, maybe truancy or something like that. Skipping out of school in a paddy wagon, come get you.
0: Reason why I ask, you know, because I, I think a lot of people, certainly me, you know, when I was twelve, if somebody walked up and put a handcuff on me, it would have been a, I'd have been like, whoa, this is crazy. What's this is a cop? But you'd seen this kind of thing before. Yeah. Did they would they cuff you when they would arrest you for truancy or when they'd stop you for uh, truancy?
3: Sometimes, depending if you try to run. Uh, did you ever run? Yeah, a couple times. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's funny. But of course, it's really not. Because it was the start of a childhood in which truant officers and cops and courts have been as common as schools. His arrest in the candy-selling fight ended simply. He was sent home with his mom. But it wasn't his last run-in with the law. There was a bunch of small stuff, but finally, it got serious. He and a bunch of his friends, they robbed a corner store. So now, he sits in detention. He's been locked up for over a year, and he's hoping they're ready to let him go.
3: Hopefully I go home, and if not, do the rest of my time, and I'm out of here. That's it. i already been off and off, like, maybe one, maybe like two years. Yeah.
1: Can't do over, this and over and over and over. I am in here with you. Yeah, part of my heart. I'm used to waking up to you every day, and you coming in my room, sitting on the bed. I mean... I, I love, I love you so much, and I don't wish this on nobody being in here or anywhere that I have to do with incarceration. I just want you to come
0: home so we could be a family again. And that's what a judge will decide, whether they do, in fact, get to be a family again or has he's got to stay inside. Later in this series, we're gonna go to court with Z and his mom and find out what happens. But first, to really understand what he's facing, we gotta pause and back up all the way to the 1990s. Get your ass about court. That's up next. So, the 90s. Boys to Men and Atlantis Morissette and Pagers and Loud Prince and that white Bronco cruising up the 405. There's all that stuff. But also, there's something we rarely look back on. It was a moment when the American imagination became fixated, for better and for worse, on a particular kind of black masculinity. Nobody
3: else. Nobody else. All you other motherfuckers get out of my business.
0: Politicians, culture warriors, church leaders, they all had opinions about the lives of young black men. This was, of course, a result of the drug trade and all of its violence. And young black men, they had a lot to say too. Performers like Biggie and Nas and Tupac spoke back to America with some of hip-hop's greatest albums. And let's be clear, there was a crime problem. At the start of the 90s, America had a higher murder rate than had been recorded since the 70s. People of all races and classes were truly shaken. Now, for some people, this was a lived problem. They looked around their neighborhood and saw violence that threatened their children. But for most Americans, this was a more distant concern. They watched it play out on the news, and they conjured a lurid image. The Hughes brothers captured that image, the one too many people had in their minds in the classic hip-hop film, *Minister to Society.
3: Now, Old Dog was the craziest nigga alive. America's
0: nightmare. Young, black, and didn't give a
2: fuck.
0: The movie's big plot twist comes from an act that, by this point in the 90s, had become the ultimate representation of just how much of a menace young black men could be an iconic act of depravity
2: carjacking it's literally the stupidest crime that you could ever commit i'm kind of dumbfounded as a relatively intelligent 16 year old that if i was
0: choosing to commit a crime like that's the crime i would commit I'm in the studio with Dwayne Betts, who's going to be with me throughout this podcast. He's going to help me think about how America deals with kids, kids like Z, who commit crimes. And hear me clearly there. We're not going to talk about guilt and innocence here. The kids in just about all the stories we'll tell are guilty. Z is guilty of armed robbery. We know that. The unanswered question is what's it even mean to call a 14, 15 year old kid a criminal? What happens after we make that declaration? Dwayne's life gives him some unique insight on the question. Today, he's a father, a husband, a renowned poet and author, and he's a lawyer who works with juvenile defendants. But at 16, he was a kid who drove to a suburban mall, flashed a gun at a guy, and stole his car. I had
2: these rules. First, I wouldn't sell weed. I just smoked. Then I might sell weed, but I definitely wouldn't sell, like, hard drug. Like, I wouldn't be selling cocaine, right? And then I knew people who robbed people, but they were just friends of mine. I, I definitely would never do this, right? And then one day, like, it was five of us, and I really only knew one of the people. And we in the room talking, and then 30 minutes later, we in a car driving to Springfield Mall. And, and I get it, like, we intentionally went there to rob somebody, but even now trying to explain it is just not as clean as that. I didn't even know their names. You know, and, and, and to admit something like that, either makes the crime seem worse or I hope makes it more obvious how kind of oblivious I was and how kind of I got caught up in this wave that that ended in
0: prison so how to go down you guys drive to the Springfield mall yeah and we, and we walked around
2: for the mall for a little bit then we came out and um and I just saw this guy sleep in his car and I tapped on his window and he was kind of startled but you know and I like whispered and he couldn't hear me so he rolled down his window I was like, get out the car, and, and and this is what's craziest though. So he gets out the car. I throw the gun in the patch the seat. But the guy, he's he's probably understandably terrified. So he's not thinking, wait a minute, this kid who's like half my size just threw the gun into the car. He just kind of gives us his wallet, and then you know a couple minutes later we jump in the car and we drive off. I literally have only held a gun one time in my life, and that was that
0: night. Holding a gun once was enough, certainly to the guy he pointed it at. And it was exactly the kind of thing expected Dwayne, even in black culture.
2: Look, it was pervasive, this idea of dangerous teenagers committing very violent crime, because it made it to the source and the vibe. I mean, I literally remember being in jail, reading vibe articles about kids who committed murders in in Florida and in Detroit. And one thing that you didn't hear in those articles was how do we understand this thing? And how do we understand it in a way that doesn't just say that that kind of behavior is this person being old dog for menace? Because old dog was like he was a menace. I mean, that's it. (laughs) Right. And, And my prosecutor called me a menace to society. Like, that's what the prosecutor said. He said that. So this wow. is like, it was an understanding of a narrative. And it wasn't just us creating a narrative and it's just some in-community narrative. It was one that that had wide ramifications that, like, drifted into the court and that drifted into politics. Anymore. They are often the kinds of kids that are called super predators. No conscience, no empathy. We can talk about why they ended up that way. But first, we have to bring.
0: In November 1995, a political scientist named John DeluLio published an essay in the Weekly Standard. It was called The Coming of the Superpredators. This essay became a huge deal and has come to represent a real pivot point in how, culturally, we think about youth and crime. DeluLio's theory, at its most basic, was that the generation headed towards puberty in the 90s was uniquely depraved because they were growing up in what he called, quote, moral poverty. The essay well captured the panic state that much of America had whipped itself into by that point. It came right after the now infamous 1994 crime bill. America was primed for a crackdown. But Delulio, his prediction was simply wrong. We were actually at the front end of a historic and ongoing drop in violent crime. Still, the idea stuck. For years, cities, states, feds, they all kept cracking down. And we can drive them out of this city once and for all chase them in every neighborhood, and get them out of here once and for all. One of the many lasting effects was a huge expansion of local police departments. By the end of the decade, the number of cops on our streets had grown by nearly a third. And Dwayne says all of this, that whole backstory of the 90s, it's the context for what happened to Z more than 20 years later when he got arrested for that schoolyard fight. He says that it's not just the laws and cops that changed. It's a mindset that took hold.
2: My lawyer introduced me to a word very early on. He said, "Um, you need to remember this. This is an aberration. I was like, I have no idea what that means. He said, what that means is that this is not who you are. Like this happened and you could own the fact that this happened, but it is an aberration. And one of the things that I think some of the popular culture and definitely DeLulio's work was attempting to do is um create this idea in in society that aberrations don't exist when you talk about young black males, young black boys. Like what we do, even if it's a one-time thing, even if it's like multiple petty crimes and then some robbery or something, that that is what our identity is and that, that we are actually incorrigible. And what you see is that that didn't just get applied to kids who committed crimes like the one I committed, but it then created a, a, like a school to prison pipeline. And the same kind of logic gotta apply to truancy, gotta to, to, like, fights on the schoolyard.
0: No aberrations. The system we've built accommodates only guilt and innocence. There's nothing in between. No space for the reality that a lot of people are both things at once. Dwayne describes how this all began to sink in for him as he sat in a courtroom at 16 years old, waiting to receive his sentence for carjacking. Okay, so tell me about the day you got sentenced.
2: You know, I knew people would take the stand and sort of be able to say some words about why they felt I shouldn't go to prison. But I didn't really have a sense of who would do it. And I had no idea what they would say. So, But the first person came out, and it was my aunt, Pandora. And so she, she basically said that I was inquisitive, intelligent, and that I had never really been in any trouble before. And that she said that ultimately she felt like it was, you know, I was raised by a single mother, and she felt like my mom couldn't teach me How to be a man, Mm. and and couldn't teach me what I needed to know to, like, navigate the peer pressure that that exerts so heavily on like young black males, and uh, apparently like a man might have been able to do that better. Who 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 spoke after that? Um, a friend's mom, and and she spoke, and she sort of just said a, a version of the same thing. The dentist cat, uh, he was supposed to be my mentor, but um, what did he say? He said, uh that I was a good kid struggling with what it meant to be raised without a father. But after that, um, the judge asked me directly if I wanted to say anything. And I was like, yes, <laughs> I, I have a couple of things I need to say, Your Honor. And, um, you know, I, I don't remember everything I said, but the, the one thing I said that I know I, that I've always sort of been proud of is that I stood up and said, you know, I apologize to everybody, to my family. to You know, because you could tell the kind of ordeal it was. People had to take off from work to come. But also apologize to the victim. That was easy for me to do. But the other thing I did was I was like, I don't know why I did it, Your Honor, but I didn't do it because I didn't have a father in the house.
0: But Dwayne, why? Like, I don't know. I mean, if the whole idea here was that they were trying to build this narrative that might get you a more lenient sentence because you were a fatherless child— why not just accept that? Why did Why did yeah, well,
2: you? Well, I mean, it's two reasons. One, I, I, I just don't believe it's true, right? But the other part of it is that, like, my mom was in the audience, and my mom did an excellent job in raising me, right? I'm fundamentally who I am as a person now because of my mom. And so I could be a lot of things, but I, at 16, I think I was, I was like, unwilling to, to let my dad be the scapegoat for this thing that I had done.
0: With the benefit of distance and age, looking back, why do you think... It was important for them to create that narrative. Why do, you, why do you think that's what they went to?
2: If they couldn't think of a reason that made me not culpable for the crime that had been committed, they probably felt like they would have to agree that I should be in prison. And so not wanting to do that, they reached for the thing that was most obvious. and And, and it was one of those tropes that— you know, not having a father in the life of a child leads to X, Y, and Z. And even though everybody knew it
0: wasn't true, it was just
2: one of those things that we grabbed a hold of.
0: And, and so they grabbed it. Because there's only two options. You can either send him to prison or figure out why he's not really truly guilty. There's there's nothing in between about what you do for a kid that committed a crime.
2: Right. Or, or that why, despite being guilty, he doesn't deserve to be in prison, particularly in prison with adults, particularly in prison For the kind of sentences that you know that i got that i ended up getting
0: what was what sentence did you receive
2: the the judge he um look i've never forgotten this i was 16 years old this happened you know at this point like 20 years ago and i have literally never forgotten what the judge said to me that day he um said i am under no illusion that sending you to prison will help And then he sentenced me to nine years in prison.
3: Coming up, Z goes to court. What do you know about my upcoming court date?
1: I know that so far you're you're doing very well here. I know that the judge said that if you can do 30 days of not getting in trouble, you'll be able to come home.
0: That's next. On Caught. Caught is a production of WNYC Studios and the narrative unit of WNYC News. This episode was reported by Jared Marcel, Courtney Stein, and myself, with additional reporting from Simone Cazares. Special thanks to Dwayne Betts for his consultation on the podcast. You should really read his book, A Question of Freedom, a memoir of learning, survival, and coming of age in prison. Also, special thanks to Fee Fam and all of the students at Building Beats a New York City nonprofit that provides music programs that teach entrepreneurial leadership and life skills to youth. This week, we featured tracks from students Taja Graves-Parker, Alberto Lugo, and Sean Gary. Casey Means is our technical director, and Hannes Brown is our composer. Our team of talented producers includes Rebecca Carroll, Jessica Miller, Sophia Carr, and Patricia Willens. Michelle Harris is our fact checker. Kari Pitkin is our senior producer. Karen Frillman is our executive producer and I'm Kai Wright. Thanks for listening. Caught is supported in part by the Anne Levy Fund, the Margaret Newbart Foundation, the John and Gwynne Smart Family Foundation, and the Economic Hardship Reporting Project.